but our text this morning is a little bit overwhelming for me. Um, you know how serious I take the word of God. I accept this to be his written word from God. I, I always say this all the time. I, I call the Bible divine in its origins. So I take it very serious. But the passage this morning is a little overwhelming. I guess maybe even in a strange sense, I'm slightly intimidated by it. Uh, maybe even feel slightly inadequate to speak on it a little more so than other scriptures. You know, there are some deep things, hidden things in the word that can be difficult to process and difficult to understand. And then this is one of them. Uh, the reason why I feel slightly inadequate is because it's, it's difficult to completely comprehend the text we're going to read momentarily. And for that reason, you might think this sounds strange, but for that reason, I'm slightly reluctant to, to preach on and to speak on these things. Um, though this verse, and I do have other verses, this verse has, has picked my interest long ago, maybe even say years ago, but I, I, since then I have avoided it, not avoided reading it or, or act like it's not there, but I avoid speaking on it because I don't want to dishonor its rich meaning and the depths of what God is trying to communicate to us. So in a weird sense, I avoid preaching on this topic, on this particular passage, because our text this morning, it, it's one of the most important statements in all of Scripture, and I do fear that my limited capacity to articulate its meaning may fall short. So I do ask, and I have asked, for the unction, for the wisdom of God this morning. So... Long story short, after this morning's service, you will either come up and say, that was a great message this morning, or you might come and say, what in the world are you talking about? Hopefully it is the former rather than the latter. Some scriptures, and I, I think we would all generally agree with this, some scriptures, the meanings of them don't immediately present themselves. Amen? You see that many times throughout the Bible. You know, I always call it, kind of rooting around for gems in the Bible, and you got to dig a little bit in order to perceive and understand them. And when you do that, I believe that the Lord rewards you with a greater understanding of who He is and, and His hidden treasures. So I did come across a teaching a while back um, from someone that I admire, and uh, it did help me to further understand uh, the, the text this morning and, and since that teaching I haven't been able to get this passage of scripture out of my mind so what better way to get it off my chest than to preach on it amen now do I have your attention yet I know I'm being kind of mysterious but I just said sincerely hope and pray that this will make sense to you this morning um, we're all going to be many theologians this morning okay so I need you to please and try and give me your undivided attention uh, so that we can perceive and understand this. If you tune out and try to jump back in later, you may be lost. Okay? So we'll get started. You know, a lot of times preachers and pastors uh, might like to ask questions, and that's what I want to do this morning. Who, who is God? Who, who is God? What do we mean when we say God? It's, if you actually think about it, it's a little bit of a, a difficult question. It is because... The name of God, if you actually think about God, I say that word God, 
the name of God, it's, it's slightly ambiguous in a sense. And what that means is God, to many people throughout the centuries, has meant the sun. God, many times, is it's mother nature to other people, to many people. God can be the earth to many environmentalists. Mankind is God to many people. So you see in that name God, it can be very ambiguous, very broad, very comprehensive in a sense. If I ask a Hindu, who is God? They're going to tell me it's Brahman or, or some other God or goddess as they have many in that religion. If I ask a Muslim, who is God? They're going to say it's Allah is God. If I ask a Buddhist, they're going to say, well, well, God is that inner self inside of you. That's who God is. It is the enlightened self. If I asked a Jew who is God, they might say Adonai. They might say it's Elohim. So you see that all these definitions and explanations fall under this comprehensive name, God. Now, I, I realize that here in church, if I say who in God, you under or who is God, you would respond to me. You would understand that I mean the, the Christian God, the biblical God. But you go outside into this world and you say, who is God? You may get all kinds of different answers of who God is. That name is slightly ambiguous. And in a sense, it doesn't reveal all who he is. Because it's a a very broad term. And who is God? We, We have to recognize this. Who is God is a very important question because the whole purpose, the whole existence, the purpose of existence is to know God and to make him known. So we better be right in who we mean when we say God. If that's the whole point of life is to know him and to make him known, we have to ask ourselves, who is God? Who is God and what is his name? Does he have a more descriptive name? Isn't there anything more than we can know about him than just he's God? So that we can further understand who he is, his attributes, his characters, what he is, who he is, his name. Now, the thing is that that question has been asked and answered in the Bible. But before we get to it, we can't just jump right to our text this morning. Please understand that. It's going to take a while to get to our text. We're going to actually work up to it. Uh, Before we get to the text this morning, before we get to his name, before we get to who he is, his name and the meaning behind it, We must understand some things. Because if you jump directly to the text, you you can't completely understand why the Lord placed it where he placed it in Scripture. So we're going to work up to it. Okay? So let's take ourselves back to what many theologians call the, the captivity. Now, this is a time in Jewish history when the Israelites were taken captive and they were enslaved in Egypt. Okay, we're all pretty much familiar with this. There is this 430 year period, roughly, where they are enslaved in a foreign land of Egypt. Okay, it is very re- important this morning that we remember that during this captivity, when they're enslaved, they're these, they have taskmasters set over them that. The Bible actually says the Egyptians caused them to serve with rigor, meaning they they whipped them, they cracked their backs. It's very important to remember that during this span, these hundreds of years of captivity, it's very important there's no Bible at this time. Okay, there's no Bible. You, You might say, well, how do you know that there's no Bible? Well, Moses is 
accredited with writing what's called the Torah, the, the laws of Moses, you know, the, the Pentateuch. Um, actually, if you look in the New Testament, you go through the Gospels, you go through some of the epistles, you will see a lot of general references from Jesus and from his disciples accrediting Moses with writing the, the laws. You actually see uh, Jesus will say the writings of Moses. Jesus will actually say things like, because Moses wrote of me. So they're crediting Moses with writing these first few early books uh, in the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, if you will. If you look at some of the things that the disciples and the apostles say, they'll say, well, the laws of Moses say. So they're, they're, they're accrediting Moses with writing the beginnings of the Bible, the Torah. And it is generally accepted by all these great minds, the, the biblical scholars, these, these guys, the divinity school guys and uh, masters of divinity. So forth. It is generally accepted that Moses has wrote those, those first five books of the Bible. So that's what I'm trying to establish is we have to remember during this captivity, there's no Bible for these people. Okay, no, no Bible. All these, there's, there's no written revelation of God yet. Nothing. Not, no pen has been to paper. So you have to remember, maybe put yourself in the Jewish people's shoes and think, here they are, enslaved in a foreign land. All these people really have is some of their patriarchs. They have Abraham, they have Isaac, and they have stories of Jacob. And these stories are passed down orally from generation to generation. They know that God has made this great covenant with their father Abraham. You know, in, in generations past, they have stories of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. If you remember, Jacob had those 12 sons. They have stories of Adam and Eve. They have stories of the great flood that covered the world. They have stories of the Tower of Babel. But they're all just stories. There's nothing written. Just stories. And if you remember, Jacob had 12 sons. You remember, Joseph was one of them, and he was taken into the land of Egypt, okay? And he ends up, making a long story short, he ends up saving his family and saving a whole lot of people because there was a great famine in the land. And he had this intellect to prepare for all of this. You remember, he reveals himself to his brothers. His brothers thought he was dead, and all, so on and so forth. But if you remember, after Joseph... Another, some time goes by, and Egypt gets new kings, new pharaohs. Generations of people die, and they become enslaved. Okay, I want to read this to you. Um, Booth, I may not have given you the scripture, but this is Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them. Let, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there fall thou any war, they join themselves also to our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore did they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pythom, and Ramses, and we'll stop reading there, but you see, that is the beginnings of the slavery. So Joseph, in his generation, passes away, new pharaohs come to power, and they start realizing, hey, we have a whole lot of these 
Israelites, there's more than them than there are of us. So they decide to enslave them, okay? Remember, there's no Bible at this point. Moses is the one that's used by God to deliver them. So Moses doesn't come around till the end of this 430-year period of, of captivity. So all the Israelites know is they have some stories. They have some traditions passed down from generation to generation. And they're people just like we are. They have a, a, a conscience just like we do to discern right and wrong. They have that moral compass inside of them just like we do. They saw all of creation that, that made them think, man, this stuff must have come from somewhere, from someone. And we know that creation, all these things testifying about this ambiguous God of their fathers. But there's nothing they can read and learn about. All they have is, well, there, there is a God, and he's the God of your forefathers. He made this covenant, but all they really know is slavery. All, all they're really exposed to, what they really see, is all these foreign gods of the Egyptian. Remember, they're in Egypt. They have no Bible. All they know is they're slaves, and they're exposed to the, in this foreign land of Egypt to this pantheon of gods and goddesses of the Egyptians. Gods like Osiris. Gods like Isis. Gods like Anubis. Those are the gods they see all around them. Those are the gods that are being worshipped all around them. All they have is some stories about there's someone with this one true god. But they're exposed to all these false gods. Yet they have these, these teachings about a one true God passed down from generation to generation. Well, who is he? What is his name? Are you with me still? So, God, you remember the burning bush, right? We don't have time to read all this stuff, but God is going to deliver his chosen people using Moses. And he is going to reveal himself to these people through the writings of Moses. Okay? That, that is the correct mindset to have. And it, it's helped me tremendously to understand Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. All, all these books, it helps me to understand them when reading or studying these books. That it is God revealing himself through written form for the first time ever to a people that don't really know exactly who he is. So read and study those books as though God is revealing himself clearly in writing to a people that don't know much about him. They have some stories. They have their conscience. They have all of nature testifying just like we do. But nothing in writing. They don't know much about him except for some history, a covenant. We know there was Adam and Eve. We know there was this flood. We know there was this Tower of Babel. So God appears to Moses in this burning bush. Which is a fantastic story, but that's for another day. But God instructs Moses that he's going to use him to free his people. And remember, even Moses. Moses was raised Egyptian, right? He, he know, the only thing he's really been exposed to is he knows, he knows the Egyptians' gods. That's what he was raised. That's what he was taught with. But he knows he's Jewish. His roots are Jewish. And there's something about this one true God. So even Moses is, is maybe slightly not fully aware of who this God is. And God appears to him. 
Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. This is God speaking to Moses now. He says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So now we're kind of working up to our text that we're going to try and address this morning. God wants Moses to go before the Israelites, not only the Israelites, but also to go before Pharaoh and tell them that God wants to set these people free. So Moses has to go to his own people and Pharaoh and say, Thus saith the Lord, let these people go. So here here we come to the text this morning. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. I'm going to start shaking and getting nervous here because I don't want to mess this up. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? And what shall I say unto them? Now we'll stop reading there for a moment, but do you see what is happening here? Moses is saying, What is your name? What is your name? We have no writings of you. I have some stories passed down about you. I believe they're true. My conscience tells me that there's got to be an entity somewhere called God. What is your name? What do you even want me to tell them? I don't even know who to tell them is telling me this stuff. What is your name? I can't just use this ambiguous name God. Because what if they think it's Anubis or Isis or Osiris, one of them gods. Who are you? Moses is saying, who are you? Am I supposed to tell them the moon god, the sun god, the god of the oceans, the god of nature, mother nature, father time? Who are you? What is your name? Tell me your name. When I tell your people that God is going to deliver them, what name shall I give them? How, how can I describe you to them? They've been for several centuries now in Egypt. The only gods they know are the Egyptian gods. How do I describe you to them? How do I differentiate you between those other gods? Who are you and what is your name? Moses is saying here. Now, God is going to respond with what may be one of the most important revelations in the Bible. One of the most important revelations in the Bible of who he actually is. A lot of times we have this notion in our mind of we think we understand who God is. Okay? You know, we, we see, we, we might think of like a, some sort of masculine, strong, cherub-looking, angelic-looking being floating on a cloud, looking down on all humanity amused by the goings-on of, of us people and so on and so forth. And we know he's strong and we know he's powerful, but, but we get these, these strange notions in us because, as I said, who is God? It is a difficult question. We all have all these different thoughts. Well, God actually tells us who he is in his response, and we must pray and dig at the meaning of the statement that he gives Moses. Here we are in verse 14. God responds, it says, And God says unto Moses, 
Now remember, before I meet, read that, Moses just said, what is your name? What is your name? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. God tells Moses his name. It, 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 that says, Haya Aser Haya. That's what he said. Haya Aser Haya to Moses. You want to know who I am, Moses? I am that I am. And this is a passage that is very difficult to understand. We know it sounds like something God would say, but what does it mean? Tell my people that I am has sent me to, or sent you to me. It, it, this statement is what I wrestle with. I am that I am. Obviously, it's important because it is a revelation of God's name. It is a revelation of who he is. Very important. And theologians tell us it has four possible meanings. So listen closely to these meanings. Meaning number one. This is a, these are translations. We have to understand that a lot of people think translating the Bible is very easy. You know, you just take one language and you know someone that knows both languages and you say, well, this word means this. You write over here, you write over there. That is not at all how it works. You have to understand you're not only translating words, but you're translating ideas. You, you see what I'm saying? Words, they didn't write Hebrew with English in mind. Understand, some things, if you translate them word for word, make no sense whatsoever. None whatsoever. A quick example, I was reading a book a while back. Um, I think in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and I could be wrong, Paul uses the, the phrase, God forbid. I think he says, like, shall we continue in sin? That What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. In Greek... That statement, God forbid, doesn't even make sense. If you went over and translated word for word to, to, to Greek, which it was written in originally, and you said, God forbid, the exact translations of the Greek person would look at you and go, huh? What? It doesn't even make sense to them. That's not even a phrase to them. In, in Greek, it's, it means something like, let it not even come into your mind, or let that not even be a thought that passes into your mind, or something like that. So you see what I'm saying is you can't just take translations word for word. Okay, so that's why this is a little bit difficult for us to translate that phrase, I am that I am. It's very difficult to translate, but we can still have a greater understanding of it this morning. Four, four meanings to it. Meaning number one, it says, I am what I am. Now remember, this is God answering Moses. Moses said, what is your name? Who do I tell them sent me? And God is telling him, I am what I am. Number two, I am who I am. Number three, I will be what I will be. And number four, I will be who I will be. All four of these statements are true when God says, I am that I am. Remember, haya, asher, haya. All four of these things are true. Now, I have this really neat book uh, I got over in my office. It's a, written by a, a man that fluently reads and writes Hebrew. He's actually taught it for many years, and this is a, he's a Jewish Torah scholar. He states this, and listen. The reason all four translations are accurate in Hebrew does not, excuse me, the reason all four translations are accurate is Hebrew does not have a word for the present tense of the verb to be. In other words, 
There is no Hebrew word for am or is or are. Therefore, in order to say, I am Joseph, for example, one would say, I, Joseph. The absence of the present tense of to be is not unique to Hebrew. It is also true of Arabic and Russian, among other languages. So here, listen. So here, remember the translation of, of who God is. So here, when God uses the future tense of the verb to be, it literally means I will be but is often translated as I am because there is no present tense of the verb to be in Hebrew. So in other words, kind of a long story short, when, when, God, when Moses says, who are you? What is your name? God says, I will be. I exist. I am that I am is God's way of explaining who he is to us. God is eternally existent is what all this means. Eternally existent. Us humans, we must realize, we must recognize everything is, uh, excuse me, everything relevant to time. Everything is relevant to time for us. Everything. But not God because he transcends. When he says, I am that I am. I am the eternally existent one. I exist. I am. I will be. He, he is saying, I transcend the past, the present, and the future. You understand it? God cannot be contained in the past. He cannot be contained in the future. He cannot be contained in the present. He cannot be contained by any type of form of time at all because he transcends time even. That's the great God that we serve. This is who God is trying to explain to Moses who he is. He is stating to Moses, I am the self-existent one. Nothing else can make that statement. Do you understand that? Nothing else can make that statement that I am self-existent. Nothing. Nothing. Only God can make that statement. The sun is not self-existent, brothers and sisters. The stars are not self-existent. The cosmos, the totality of the universe cannot make that statement that they are self-existent. Nature is not self-existent. The universe is not self-existent. I am that I am means God transcends the material universe. He transcends it. He is beyond it. He is prior to it. He is above it. All those things. He is beyond them. That's what I am that I am means. All those things. Nature. Stars. The sun. The ground that we walk in. All of those things had a beginning. You have a beginning. I have a beginning. Trees have a beginning. Rocks have a beginning. The celestial bodies have a beginning. Even time had a beginning. But not God. He has no beginning. No beginning of what I am. God, God says, I am. I have no beginning. I exist. I am eternally existent. You tell them, Moses, that's who I am. I am that I am. It means I am beginningless. It means I am uncaused. I am changeless. I am immaterial. I am timeless. I am spaceless. This is who God is. This is who He is. We need to get the goofy notion of some cherub floating around on a cloud who can point lightning bolts out of His fingers. Dismiss that. He is infinitely more than that. Everything else, everything else except God had a beginning it had a cause. God is beginningless and co nothing caused God. God just is. I am. 
self-existent. I am that I am. You want to know who I am, Moses? You want to describe them to me? I am existence. All of existence. Nothing can exist outside of God. Nothing. Outside of God, there's nothing. Nothing. Let me explain it to you this way. Hopefully I can try and make sense out of this. None of you in this room expect, let's say, an oak tree to pop into existence right here on stage, do you? We know, we know that doesn't make sense. No one in here expects a buffalo to pop into existence, poof, right here on stage beside me. Or a car, or a cat, or a dog to just poof, appear right here, or, or a house, or any inanimate object. We know that those things don't happen. We know this because it's, it's self-evident. Things don't just pop into existence. We know that. It's not logical. It's not reasonable. It's not even a rational thought. So it is self-evident that all these things, they have a cause. I am here because of my mom and dad. They're here because of their parents and so on and so forth. A, a tree is here not because it popped into existence but because of an acorn or a seed from its parent tree and so on and so forth. This pulpit is here because someone made it somewhere. Everything has a cause. Things don't just come into existence on their own. A cause is something that brings about an effect or a result. That's what I mean by when I say cause. That, brothers and sisters, listen to me. That is the fundamental difference between God and man. Between God and everything else. God had no beginning, so nothing caused God. Everything else, everything, from the smallest dust mite to the greatest mountain, to the smallest child, to the tallest NBA player, had a cause. God does not have a cause. Nothing caused him to come into existence. He is the self-existent one. That's the fundamental difference between God and man. We have a cause. God is uncaused. That's what God means when he says, I am that I am. God has the attribute of self-existent. God just is. He just is. He had no beginning. Nothing caused God to come into existence. He just is. You and I have a beginning. So something or someone caused us to come into existence. But not God. That's why He's worthy of our devotion and of our worship. Because he is greater than we are. He is so much greater than we are. Listen to this. God does not depend on anything. Nothing. He depends on absolutely nothing. We, on the other hand, need oxygen. We need food. We need water. We need clothing. We need protection from the elements. We depend on these things. If we don't have them, we die. And we ain't here anymore. We don't exist anymore. We depend on gravity. We depend on the perfect atmospheric pressure. We depend on the perfect atmospheric gases. You know if oxygen's too high, you die. If oxygen's too low, you die. You're gone. We depend on the appropriate climate. It has to be a temperate climate or we can't exist. We're very dependent. God doesn't need any of those things. 
I am. I just am. I exist. I am self-existent. I don't depend on any of these things. We are very frail and finite. We're very frail. I feel like I'm in halfway decent shape now. I could be dead before the day's over. God is eternal. He is eternal. He exists in and of himself. There is, now here's where things can get a little tricky if they're not tricky enough already. But I love this and I hope I don't mess this up. There's a philosophical view called the power of being. And I was listening to a pastor kind of preach on this a few weeks back or something. It it was awesome. It was just mind-blowing how awesome it was. He was talking about the power of being. Only God, and I say it again, only God has the power of being. Only God has the power to be. Okay? What, What I mean by that is only God can cause something to come into being out of nothing. Out of nothing. Only God can create something out of nothing. And when I mean nothing, I mean nothing. I've heard a phrase that someone said, nothing is what rocks dream about. Get that? That's what nothing is. Nothing means nothing. Only God has the power of being. Only God can cause something to come into existence out of complete nothingness. Only God has this power of being. No man nor creature has ever had the power of being. I did not call myself into existence. I did not say, hmm, I want to be alive and and move and, and have my being and be alive. No, I did not do that. I do not have that power. Nor do you, nor does an animal, nor does a mountain. Nothing has this power of being except for God. No man nor creature has ever brought something into existence out of nothingness. Think of it this way. Imagine if I locked you in an empty room. Imagine a, a room, whatever size. doesn't really matter. And it's completely empty. Completely empty. Nothing is in it. Remember the stuff that rocks dream about. That's what's inside that room. Nothing. And I told you to build me a car. Or any goofy object. You might say to me, you might look around and say, well, where's my tools? You've got to give me some tools. You, you want a car, you've got to give me some tools. I need a welder. I need a, a tape measure. I need a bench vice. I need a lathe. Well, you don't get any tools. Now build me a car. Then you might look around further. You might say, well, where's my raw materials? I need some materials. I need some metal. I need rubber. I need plastic. I need glass. Well, you don't get any materials either. No tools, no material. What you get is nothing. You get no tools, no materials, no blueprints even. You get nothing. Matter of fact, to take it a step even further, inside of that room, there's not even time. There's not even space. So then your room even goes away. Nothing. Nothing at all. And I tell you to make me something. You can't, can you? You can't. You know, the the truth is man cannot create anything. Only God can create. Man can make things. We can make things. 
on standing on a stage that men built. We're in a building that men built. They made it, but they did not create it out of nothing. They were given raw materials. Man can make things, but they cannot create. You might say to me, well, you want me to build you a car, but you give me nothing. You don't even give me time and space. Then you don't get a car. Why? Because you can't. You don't have the power of being. You don't have the ability to call something into being out of nothing. Nothing. And mind you, brothers and sisters, a car is a very simple mechanism compared to a living organism. The, the most smallest simple-celled amoeba we have found out with the invention of electron microscopes in biology that it's a whole lot more complex than we ever thought it was. You do not have the power to create something out of nothing. This is what God means when he says, I am that I am. You want to know who I am, Moses? This is who I am. I have the power of being. Now, keeping our little example in mind of the empty room that has nothing in it, and I tell you to build me something complex, you have no materials, no nothing, keeping that little example in mind, look around you. Really, look around, because the weird thing is, there's stuff everywhere, right? There's things everywhere, there's microphones, there's pulpits, there's other people, there's pews, there's roof, there's lights, there's stuff everywhere. There's people, there's trees, there's creatures, there's nature, there's the celestial bodies, there's oceans full of marine life. There's mountains where eagles soar. There's prairies where buffalo roam. And if none of those things have the power to call themselves into existence out of nothing, where did they come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? If there's no God, there should be nothing. Nothing. But yet there's things around us. There's a whole world to discover all around us. They came from someone that has the power of being. God. I am that I am. I have the power to call things into being out of nothing, Moses. That's who I am. I've heard it said, I think this is pretty neat. I've heard it said that the smallest speck of dust is all you need to prove the existence of God. B because we know, you know, I have a wood burner at home. There's lots of specks of dust at my house. He always gets on my wife's nerves. She has to go around and wipe everything up. But we, we know if, if I had a speck of dust, if all of you had a speck of dust in your hand, and you could even see it. We know that this speck of dust exists. It exists. It's right there. We can see it. We can point to it. It exists. But we know that it does not have the power of being to call itself into existence. Something that transcends all of this material world called this speck of dust into existence. The only conclusion can be there is a God that has the power of being that called all this into existence. This pulpit, the, the paper that the pages of this Bible are printed on, Living organisms like you and I. Nothing, nothing possesses that power to just come into existence on its own. 
It does not. It cannot be. So this proves to us there is a God. And he's awfully, awfully powerful. I am that I am. Do you know, brothers and sisters, this is the conclusion that some of the world's greatest philosophers came to. You know, a lot of times you study history. If you remember back in high school, they taught you about Plato. They taught you about Socrates and Aristotle. You know, all those great philosophers. And honestly, if you start studying them, we, we owe a lot to them. They were very great thinkers. That They discovered forms of government, forms of economic trade. I think a lot of us don't realize how much our daily lives are impacted by some of these great Greek philosophers. But these great Greek philosophers, they started asking some of these questions. They started looking around them and saying, where did all this come from? Mind you, these were before the days of Christ. Where did all this come from? How do we know what is good and what is right? How do we know these things? And some of their writings are tremendous and, and difficult, but they called God. Now, they didn't maybe not recognize him as the God of the Bible, but the conclusion that Aristotle came to, he called God the unmoved mover of all the motion in the universe. Do you understand that? that, that is, now, now, think of that. Okay, so here we have these Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, and they're saying there's, there's got to be some entity that transcends this material world that 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 is the this unmoved mover of all motion in the universe now recall if you will does it not now make sense that in acts chapter 17 the apostle paul is traveling around and he gets into athens to greece where all these greek philosophers are what does he find written on an altar what's the inscription that he finds written on an altar to the unknown god does it not start making sense? These, these Greeks, they started saying, this, there's, there's got to be some sort of being. There's got to be something out there. The, the, the greatest minds that ever exist, this is the conclusion they came to. They knew that things don't have the power to call themselves into existence. Someone, something, somewhere does. And the Apostle Paul preached Christ to them. Is actually centuries later, you may have heard of St. Thomas Aquinas. He, he actually was a tremendously wise theologian. And he bridged the gap between the Greek philosophers, the, the Aristotles, the Platos, in his writings. And you arrive at the biblical God that is the creator. I am that I am is responsible for everything we see. Everything. Now, we'll go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am that I am. He said, and thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Verse 15, because he's, he's further going to answer Moses' question. Remember Moses' question is, who are you? What is your name? And God said, moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. 
And this is my memorial unto all generations. Look there where it says the Lord God in all capital letters. At least in my King James version of the Bible. That Lord, it's in all capital letters. It means Jehovah. In Hebrew, this is the word Yahweh. He said, Moses, you want to ask my name? It is Jehovah. It is Yahweh. God gets specific with his name. God says, well, we'll move away from this very ambiguous term of God that will differentiate me from Anubis and Isis and Osiris. My name is Yahweh. He tells Moses, tell them that Jehovah sent you. The, na- the same God of Abraham, the same God of Isaac, the same God of Jacob. You tell them, Yahweh sent you. This is my name forever. He tells Moses, Jehovah shall stand as a memorial unto all generations. I am way back then. I am now, today. Jehovah. Jehovah is the the Latin version of the word Yahweh. And it means to be the existent one. God just is. I am that I am shall stand as a memorial to all generations. He was the great I am thousands of years ago when this was penned by Moses. And he is the same exact I am that I am to us in this sanctuary on this very day today. I am that I am. Do you understand the implications of this? This this revelation of who God is. He is revealing us. This is who I am. I'm not that cherub floating up around on a cloud somewhere. That's not who I am. This is who I am. Do you understand that statement, I am that I am? It it means we owe absolutely everything to Jehovah. Everything. Life itself we owe to Jehovah. The fact that you exist, you owe to the great I am. The fact that you have ground to walk on and gravity to hold you to that ground, you owe to the great I am. Should you see a beautiful sunset, you owe that to the great I am. Should you see the precious life of a newborn child, you owe that to the great I am. Should you see the heavenly hosts shining above you some night, you owe that to the great I am. Should you see the beauty in the different seasons of life, you owe that to the great I am. Should you see the warm embrace of a loved one, you owe everything to the great I am. Nothing can even exist outside of God. God. Everything is owed to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You might say, well, why do you preach that to us this morning, brother? Because I don't think we realize who he really is. We don't realize his magnanimity. He's huge. Words fail by the most skilled orator to describe this being. I I can't even today begin to scratch the surface to describe this great God, Yahweh, to you. Other than looking at what he said, I am that I am. We owe everything to him. Everything. Because he is existence, the existent one. I think we would do well to remember 
to, to remember the greatness of our God. This is how big he is. I mean, this is a God that's unimaginably powerful, spaceless, timeless, beginningless, uncaused, immaterial. I mean, I, we can barely wrap our minds, eternal, self-existent. We would do well to remember that the next time we go to worship. We would do well to remember that the next time you kneel down to pray. In, in the story of Moses, when God says, I am that I am, you look, Moses is slightly worried because he's thinking, I got to go before Pharaoh. I got to go before your own people. God's saying, what are you worried about them for? You, you ought to be worried about me. Why? Because I am. I exist eternally. I have never not existed. I am uncaused. Worry about that one, not the Pharaohs, not what your people are going to think. When we kneel down to pray, I, I'm telling you, I think we think of this cherub up in heaven, and maybe he'll hear my prayers, maybe he'll respond, maybe he won't, maybe he'll be busy doing something else. No, no, no. He is the great I am. Keep these things in mind the next time you read your Bible. Th this Bible in its entirety is revelation of who God is. Now, I'll bring this to a close. The band, you can start making your way back. But now that we have went through this, I think we can understand a passage of Scripture from the New Testament now. From the book of Romans. Actually, a few weeks ago on Sunday night, we went through this. I love this. Maybe we'll have a little bit more clarity when we read it today. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, this apostle Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it shall be recompensed unto him again? Listen to this. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, that's who God is. That's who he is. That's who God tells Moses who sent him to the Israelites. You want to know who I am, Moses? I am that I am. Let's stand this morning, church. Let's give the Lord a round of applause. He's worthy of praise. <laughs> Hallelujah. Band, you ready? ready? All right, let's worship the great I am, church. He is I am that I am. Ooh, how great. 